Welcome to the Dead Celebrities Podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Dead Celebrity Podcast. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning catastrophes, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Scott Steiner. Scott is a wealth planning consultant with Calamos Wealth Management in Chicago. He develops and assists in the implementation of clients' financial plans. He also prepares presentations on behalf of wealth advisors with their client service team. Scott has more than 15 years of experience in financial planning and banking. He's previously held positions at Raymond James, Wells Fargo, and Prudential Financial. Scott's also a CFP and holds Series 7 and 66 licenses. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So the subject of our discussion today, if you couldn't guess from our Chicago guest, is the Wrigley family, best known for their chewing gum dynasty and the main topic we're going to discuss today, their ownership of the Chicago Cubs and iconic Wrigley Field. Uh, William Wrigley Jr. made his fortune out of either savvy business sense or dumb luck, depending on how you look at it. He had $32 to his name when he started selling Wrigley scouring soap at the turn of the 20th century. That's about $900 in today's money. He offered customers small premiums, particularly baking soda, as an incentive to buy his soap, because that's what I need with all my soap. Finding the baking powder was more popular than the soap, Wrigley switched to selling the baking powder, and then started giving his customers two packages of chewing gum for each can of baking powder they purchased. Again, Wrigley found that the gum was more popular than the baking powder. So he switched his company's focus once again to the product that would eventually provide him with his fortune. In 1916, Wrigley bought a minority stake in the Chicago Cubs baseball team as part of a group headed by Charles Wiegman, former owner of the Federal League's Chicago Whales. So this is way back. Over the next four years, as Wiegman's lunch counter business declined, he was forced to sell a lot of the stock in the ball club to Wrigley. By 1918, Wigman had sold all of his stock to Wrigley, making Wrigley the largest shareholder and the principal owner. And by 1921, Wrigley was the majority owner of the Cubs. William's son, P.K. Wrigley, took over both the company and the Cubs after his father's death in 1932. And while the chewing gum concern prospered under his leadership, his beloved Cubs, well, they sucked. They began an extended legacy of losing largely unparalleled in American sports which they're now only beginning to escape the stigma of after finally winning the World Series in 2016, marking their first championship since 1908. In 1977, P.K. and Helen Wrigley, his wife, died within three months of each other, leaving their son, William Wrigley III, with an unexpected $40 million estate tax bill. Initially, he tried selling blue-chip stock holdings and even discounted Wrigley Company stock by 35% to try and raise the liquid cash to pay the government but that only got him about halfway there. Ultimately, Mr. Wrigley was faced with a choice. He could either sell a significant portion of his 25% interest in the gum company, 
which was a highly profitable enterprise, or he could sell his holdings in the Cubs, a perennial money loser and an enterprise that outsiders suspected he tolerated out of respect for his father. Unsurprisingly, Mr. Wrigley sold his 80.5% interest in the National League Ball Club to the Tribune Co. in 1981, yes, the newspaper, for $20.5 million. Now, not many typical clients own massive chewing gum dynasties, let alone professional baseball teams. But many do own closely held businesses and have illiquid assets in their estates. So, Scott, what can advisors take away from the Wrigley story? Yeah, the, the Wrigley family really made two fatal mistakes. And the first one was just not recognizing that there was an estate tax in the first place. And the second one was, had they recognized that, would have been to figure out how they would pay that massive tax bill with an estate that was clearly largely illiquid, tied up in the chewing gum company and the Chicago Cubs slash Wrigley Field. And this is really not that uncommon from what we find with our clients is the obliviousness to the estate tax in general. Uh, most, most people feel like the wealth that they've accumulated during their lifetime is theirs and they earned it through hard work and entrepreneurship and they have every right to transfer that to the next generation without the government being involved. Unfortunately, government feels a little different about it. In the United States, the transfer of wealth is viewed as a privilege. And as a privilege, the government has fees and taxes associated with that privilege. And so going back to 1916, there has been an estate tax and the threshold with which that becomes applicable is clearly changed over time from a low of $40,000 back in 1940 to the current amount of 11, almost $11.6 million. But to boil it down to uh, its simplest form, the estate tax is a tax on the transfer of wealth over and above a certain threshold in any given year. And the Wrigley's were completely oblivious to this and thus uh, did not did not plan for it at all. Yeah, I'm glad that you wrote up, uh, and just to harp on the point, that the estate tax is a tax on the transfer of wealth. You're a lot of, anytime the estate tax comes up, which in an election year this year, you're going to start hearing about it again, because like clockwork, every four years, the estate tax becomes an issue. You hear about double taxation and all these sorts of things. And that's not really the truth. Because it's not, you're not being taxed on the income again, you're being taxed on transferring that income to the next generation. Exactly. We've talked about illiquid assets in, in, in an estate and how they can be common. Can you just give us some examples, Scott, of what, like, what some of those might look like? We said, you know, we've already mentioned a, a closely held company, but what other sort of illiquid assets do you see popularly in estates? Yeah, most commonly, it's a, a closely held business and uh, not a publicly traded company, but uh, those tend to be. Uh, by far and away the most common. Uh, next would be collectibles, whether they be artwork, uh, jewelry, uh, exotic cars, something that can't be just moved very quickly like a stock or a bond can or cash can be. And uh, they're always the most overlooked because they're uh, not as readily marketable as, as some of those other ones. Those are definitely the most common ones. Those are good ones. I also know uh, 
how true this is, I'm not sure, but that a lot of times it comes up that farmers uh, often fall afoul of the estate tax as well because they own all this machinery and all this land that they can't really very quickly turn into money. No, absolutely. And uh, depending on where that farmland is located, Illinois being a great example, because there's there's far more corn in Illinois than people realize. Uh, you get south of Chicago, and it, it's, it doesn't look any different than Iowa. But, but, but as the Chicago suburbs have grown, that farmland has become vastly more lucrative because developers would love to get their hands on it and slap up subdivisions. And so these farmers find themselves sitting on gold mines, so to speak, because of the uh, inherent value underneath the land to developers. That's a great example. It's a funny one. Right? I wonder how the state let that one get away as a state slogan, right? Illinois, <laughs> there's far more corn here than you realize. <laughs> really bring the tourists in. Put that on the license plates. That'd be great. <laughs> So now that we talked about these things and just awareness of the estate tax, how do you start the planning for this sort of thing? I mean, obviously, informing the client, right? Making sure that they're not one of the oblivious ones is step number one. But then where do you go from there? I always ask a very, very simple question. And, and sometimes you might be surprised by the answer. But when we know from what we understand from the client, we, we can typically pick out a significant you know, pending a state tax bill pretty quickly. And our first question to the client is, are they concerned about that? Are, do they cringe at the thought of potentially passing away and seeing 40 plus percent of what they've worked for going to the government? And most of the time, they aren't in love with that idea, but you'd be surprised that there are definitely a percentage of instances where when they look at what would be left after estate taxes and what they've already given their children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews, they say, you know what? The government still gets a portion of this. Looking at what's left after that, I'm okay with that. And if that's the answer, there really is no more need for planning because they are okay with the consequences. And if they're not okay with that, then that's when we need to start digging into a lot more fact-finding questions such as where do you want this to go? Uh, are you charitably inclined at all? Is philanthropy important to you to learn about ultimately whether it's during their lifetime as gifts or at the time they pass away, making sure we know who it is that they want it to go to and when and then we can help them figure out the most efficient way to do that. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that closely held businesses are sort of by far the most common illiquid assets. Um, what are some of the unique challenges that, that they present um, in, as, in particular as assets in an estate? Generally, especially when you're talking about first generation, when we're working with the client who started the business from the ground up, they are very reluctant to give up control of the business. And even if children or other family members are involved, there's, there's a lot of times that underlying concern of, well, they, they won't do it as well as I did. And so they want to maintain control of the business until the day that they take their last breath. But as we often have to explain to clients, control is the name of the game when it comes to from an estate tax perspective, what will be and what won't be included in your taxable estate. 
And we can demonstrate to them that if they're willing to give up a certain amount of control, we can effectively remove certain assets from their estate. And with a closely held business, that is a difficult thing to do, especially with first generation business owners, because that's their baby and giving up control is not easy. Yeah, it's, uh, the control thing is very interesting, too, because just to mention another sort of celebrity sports team owner I know of several years back, that was a big point of contention in Bill Davidson's estate. Mm. Um, Bill Davidson was the owner of the Pistons and the Tampa Bay Lightning. And um, his team tried to get really creative with self-canceling installment notes and all sorts of deep dive estate planning stuff that we're not going to get into. Um, but suffice it to say that the, the whole idea was to give up a lot of stock while still maintaining control control but give the illusion of giving up control and it ended up costing them i mean tens of billions of dollars at the end of the day absolutely yeah and that's the that's one of the very common techniques is to establish a family limited partnership or a family llc where you do get the children involved and this does help to solve some of the control issues because the the founding member of the business can remain the general partner and continue to have control over the day-to-day operations, but can introduce their children as limited partners and is common with any business structure. It's really the limited partners that have the interest in the underlying capital of the business. And it can become a really effective way to maintain the control, but still start removing the underlying value of the business to the next generation. Well, you mentioned removing, and I think generally traditionally in in estate tax planning, removing has kind of been the name of the game, right? In terms of either removing control or just removing things from your ultimate estate. Uh, But now that the kind of, in the last decade or so, we've really seen, as you mentioned before, the the estate tax exemption go through the roof um, to the point that, you know, it's the vast majority of Americans never have to think about it. Um, but there's still quite a bit of planning that can go around about that. And I mean, there are some strategies that, you know, maybe you do want to leave stuff in your estate, you know, and, and, and leave it alone. Absolutely. I mean, even starting back from a more uh, basic planning that we do with many of our clients, regardless of having, say, a closely held business or illiquid assets is just utilizing their respective exemptions in the most efficient manner. Uh, Portability of the estate tax exemption was introduced not all that long ago, considering the long history of the estate tax. But what portability essentially is, using a husband and a wife as an example, is between the two of them, you've got an exemption amount sitting just north of $23 million combined. And in the old days, so to speak, Uh, whatever exemption wasn't used at the first death evaporated. It didn't transfer over to the surviving spouse. Now with portability, if a husband passes away first and only uses $5 million of his exemption, any remaining amount now transfers to the surviving spouse and they now have their full exemption plus any unused exemption that uh, they have. This is where a lot of times, though, we'll work with the client and their attorney on uh, a credit shelter trust, which essentially not only shelters the exemption amount, but also all the future growth associated with the trust. So to sort of simplify that, 
if we were to fund a credit shelter trust with say $11.5 million and by the time the second spouse passes away, it's worth $20 million just due to appreciation of the securities, that full $20 million is uh, off of the table as far as uh, being included in that surviving spouse's taxable estate. And they do have uh, during their lifetime, some access to the income and principal, as long as it's for generally their health, maintenance, and support uh, based on the lifestyle that they were accustomed to. So they're not locked out of it. But again, we're giving up enough of the control of that trust where they don't have unrestricted access to it that we can balance access to the assets, but still have it be out of the estate. Yeah, it's. I think it's very important for advisors who maybe don't necessarily interact with the estate planning exemption lot to understand and to look at it. It's a resource to be used as part of the plan. It's not some limiter or just some rule you have to follow. It is a resource that can be leveraged to improve a plan. I mean, particularly we see it a lot, I think nowadays in terms of, you know, with either, you know, appreciated or unappreciated assets, depending on what you want to do with them. And also just with basis planning. Um, and for the, Scott, you mind explaining just what cost basis is, you know, tax basis is just for, for those who don't aren't familiar with that term. Yeah, absolutely. So your cost basis, you know, let's use a really easy example. We'll use a stock. If you bought Apple stock, for example, way back in 1990 and had the wherewithal to hold on to it for the last 30 years, uh, you could probably retire on what, whatever that balance is now. But if you paid a dollar for that stock and it's trading at $200 a share now, then uh, your cost basis would still be that dollar per share that you originally paid for it. And anything over and above that is now taxable using a stock as an example, as a capital gain. And one of the benefits to holding on to a stock or appreciated securities uh, until you do pass away is there is an adjustment in that cost basis as of the date of death. And I say adjustment because it commonly gets referred to as a step up, which is a bit of a misnomer because stepping up assumes that that <laughs> security is appreciated since you yes. originally bought it. It's really an adjustment. So there's always the possibility of a step down. So I like to, I like to be accurate in saying that it's an adjustment in the basis and that can uh, help offset some of the potential estate taxes because that adjustment and basis only applies to the assets that are still included in the taxable estate. So for yeah. any anything that's been removed from the estate in, say, a credit shelter trust or maybe a different irrevocable trust structure does not get the benefit typically of that adjustment in cost basis. So it's a little give and take. And it's important to realize also that, that, that that's that is kind of the only time that that adjustment really happens, right? Like if I were just to, to give, you know, I bought a painting, a George O'Keefe for $10 when she was in college or something, and now it's worth $10 million. If I were to give that, just give it to my child, they don't get the basis step up on that transfer. It's not every transfer that you get this adjustment made. They will still have it at my $10. And whenever they sell it, then they're going to get taxed on the difference. So when we, you know, de death is sort of the opportunity here, where you're already going to pay a state tax on it, maybe, or you're going to use your exemption to get this sort of free adjustment in a way. Absolutely. And that brings up a, a great point, which 
uh, we hadn't mentioned yet, which is the idea of gifting during one's lifetime. And as far as cost basis is concerned, you're absolutely right. That cost, that original cost basis from the original owner transfers with the gifted asset to the recipient of that gift. But it's also important to note that the estate tax exemption, as it is commonly called, is really an estate and gift tax exemption. And many advisors and even our clients are aware that there's an annual gift tax exclusion that currently sits at $15,000 a year. But any gift over that amount to any one recipient in a given year is technically a taxable gift. And so the donor has to make a decision. They either need to pay the tax on the gift, you know, about at about 40%, or they can use some of their 11 point, we'll call it the $11.6 million exemption and choose to not save that all for the time that they pass away and choose to start actually using up some of that exemption during their lifetime to avoid paying the tax. And we're actually starting to see that happen more common, that clients are becoming more generous during life. And the reason is there's a, a growing feeling like this $11.6 million exemption is probably going to be relatively short-lived. And as the current legislation uh, is scheduled to sunset in 2026, barring uh, a, a change not being made to the law, we could go back to maybe a $6 million exemption. Oh, so we'll almost have it by the time 2026 rolls around, but the IRS has already made it clear that if you were to just, let's use a drastic scenario, you just gifted $11.58 million out of your estate today and used your entire exemption during your life, and then it gets reduced to say $6 million in the future and you pass away, there won't be a clawback of the fact uh, that the exemption amount has dropped, say, five or $6 million. So there's an opportunity right now to actually take advantage of the very high amount and gift assets uh, and get that future growth out of a taxable estate and not have the concern of a potential clawback from the IRS later on. So, yeah. And while we're, while we're just using every estate planning buzzword we can find in this podcast, <laughs> when, you say, when you say clawback, we're talking about the IRS going back and sort of undoing transactions and, and taxing you retroactively. Exactly. On, on stuff you did. Yep. They'll grandfather. They've already made it clear that they will grandfather any gifts that are made up to those exemption amounts. They, they won't come back and penalize somebody for taking full advantage of what was within the bounds at the time that they did it. So now that we've sort of uh, gotten pretty much the basics of how the estate plan, estate tax works kind of out of the way, um, you know, what we see here with the Wrigley's and, and how you mentioned with, you know, how it's really hard to sometimes get planning started with the first generation of the family. It seems that a lot of times the sins of the father can sort of cascade downwards and that if you don't get the plan in place with the first you know, generation of the family, it's not going to magically come around with the second and third. The second and third are more likely I, I've found to sort of go with what the plan is and not to sort of step in and disrupt things. Is that right. something that you've seen as well? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's very important for families to communicate their wishes. We really encourage our clients to be as open and forthcoming with their children as they're comfortable with. 
and we realize that there's even within families some privacy there but we a lot of times can't stress enough to them how important it is to have the next generation involved because it's very easy as you just said and and we saw this with the regulars it's very easy to repeat these mistakes and and compound these issues over and over again and it really starts with that uh, initial planning because that typically does carry forward to the next generations and you know part of you know you mentioned uh this communication that, that we talk about every single episode on this podcast and we talk about it here again um because it is just that important um you know communicating it's a two-way street right so the the children know how important you know say the, the wrigley kids knew how important the cubs were to their father but you know there's some speculation that that you know wasn't for the youngest wrigley, wrigley the third the cubs weren't that big a deal they didn't really care now you know that's something that is more common than you think you know you have a lot of a lot of the times parents have assets that they're deeply passionate about this is the family business that i built you know and, and this is my life and sometimes the kid is involved and is super proud of being involved and really loves it but also often they, they have no interest in that business they don't have it's not their life they don't have the same connection to it but the assumption is made that they're just going to step in and happily and passionately pursue it like their parent did Mm-hmm. And so that's where a place where sort of a two-way communication is very important because the plan has to, you know, is not just to get it to them, it's to have things succeed once they get it. Absolutely. Yeah. And having, especially with a closely held business, having a properly drafted and funded buy-sell agreement is very important and often overlooked, especially if the business won't stay uh, within the family. And, and thinking again of those closely held businesses is once you've done what you can, can you know, get a client to do comfortably from an estate planning perspective, at the end of the day, using the Wrigley's as, as the example, is it still comes down to liquidity. Uh, and realistically, uh, the, the Wrigley's, had they been aware of it, and had they been willing to do some planning, probably could have still only done so much. We're talking about an $80 million estate in 1977. The estate tax exemption was $120,000 in 1977. So they were just a hair over that. Yeah, just uh, a little. <laughs> incidentally, the, the top estate tax rate in 77 it was 70%. And uh, ironically, as I did some research on this, 1977 also happened to be the uh, highest year in US history with regards to the percentage of people that died that year that were subject to estate taxes. Nearly 8% of the people that died in 1977 were subject to estate taxes. So uh, they picked a really bad year to, to pass away. And once Reagan took office and the numbers started to move up, you started to see a drastic reduction in that. But they just really, uh, it was just bad timing. Not that any of us get to have yeah. much of a say in that. But ultimately, the best planning they could have done after just being aware of the issue would have been to plan for better liquidity. And that's where things like life insurance often come into play. I know a lot of times that's not everybody's favorite subject, but it oftentimes becomes the best vehicle for a liquidity need. But it also is an excellent gifting vehicle as well that we haven't touched on. And uh, there probably would have been uh, the potential for some 
really, really good use of life insurance that could have gone a long way in undoing a lot of the liquidity issues that the Wrigley's faced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and these are all sort of the ways that you know you have to think of when you're looking at estate planning, right? Because I, I don't think you know you say to most people life insurance, they're not they're thinking that oh, okay, if something happens to me, this will pay off for my funeral and, and take care of my kids, and that's not really the kind of life insurance. I mean, it is that kind of life insurance, but that's not really necessarily the, the purpose of a plays in an estate plan or, or in, a, in, a, in a financial plan in general. And um, I think you're getting that across to clients is, is, is an important thing to communicate. Absolutely. And um, I know that we, this has been a little bit more of a legal easy episode uh, than we usually do, but I think giving this sort of overview basically of the estate tax um, is something that's important for all advisors, regardless of whether you're an attorney or not, to uh, at least understand. You don't need to be able to fill out a gift tax return. God knows that's a nightmare, you know, but you do need to kind of know what's going to go on there, even if you don't do the cop- have to do the computations yourself. And just some awareness of these issues and just knowing how things affect each other and when it's time to like, okay, maybe I need to bring in the guy who, who knows exactly how this works just so I can figure it out just to recognize and have enough knowledge to recognize when there's a problem and when there's an issue is really important for advisors to have. And that's kind of why I wanted to do this episode with Scott is to sort of, you know, even though the estate tax is not something that jumps off the page at everyone, um, it is still very important for advisors to understand. Yeah, very much so. And that's really all the time that we have for today. Um, I'd like to thank Scott Steiner, our excellent guest, for uh, sitting down with us and really giving a, a very sort of comprehensive overview of what the estate tax looks like and sort of what you can start to do with clients to make them aware of it and to sort of avoid it. So, so thank you so much, Scott. Thank you for having me. I really appreciated it. Well, that's all the time we have, folks. So I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.